She go down down this cliff, go left down the cliff, yeah. left, and then just tumble for a while, and then you should be there. When a competent observer looks for signs of despotism in a community, he looks beyond fine words and noble phrases. It's society. They work for each other. They pay each other. They buy houses. They get married and make children. They that just sounds like slavery with extra steps. I go into the automobile business and compete with the other trust. Can I go into the grocery business and compete with the chain stores? Not a chance. Monopoly is the menace of free enterprise. This is just a big money-making machine. They're wandering through a maze of inauthentic, fake landscapes, and they can't escape. The message in all this is that the capitalist system in America is unfair and is, in fact, a failure at providing for basic human needs or maintaining continued national growth. I, I can't wait for like the episode of like who wants to be a millionaire where all the contestants like team up and they overpower the hosts and they share the money. Bottom-up horizontal connection is sharing at all levels, not top-down control. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Because as communities go, so goes the nation. Welcome, welcome to Three Left Show. I am your host, Daniel Platt, host with the most. This program, for the final time, at least for two hours, covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left perspective, for the curious or the committed, depending on the episode. Promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy and a commons economy. Discussing the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself and for itself. Meaning point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology. Those are the three lefts. We are proud to say so. Or I am, anyway. So, welcome. I've been going on and off uh, with this program uh, every other week. Uh, this is because of two things that have occurred over the winter. First, um, or rather since last fall. First, I have been working full-time which over, I had an eight-year employment drought, I could call it, where I worked full part-time and sometimes really scantily uh, like last year. But now I work full-time, and this has led to, you know, lack of free time, the ability to basically work a part-time job as a podcaster. Some podcasters strike it big, they grow fast, they get a good Patreon uh, subscription, and they're able to just do that full-time. That was never really my plan. I never wanted to be a full-time media producer. I always saw this more as hobby slash community political project, which is why it is entangled with this community radio station that I'm a part of and help manage. The other thing that occurred over the winter, which I'll share now, is um, it was in the late fall, meaning December, that my father was diagnosed with a late stage cancer. And uh, it was basically terminal, so we kind of knew he wouldn't be walking away from it. And we've basically been watching him waste away, where he, about a week and a half ago, finally passed. So now that the funeral is over with, and um, life continues, of course, as we um, are thinking of him, Part of who I am with my father, uh, we have a good relationship, especially in the last several years as an adult, is one connected to conservationism. He himself was an activist. Uh, he was in environmentalist club when he was in college in the literally 68 to 72. 
And from there, he organized many cleanups of Western Albany, also known as the Pine Bush area. It was the dumping ground of many businesses. Many businesses' wealth in the 50s and 60s was built on their ability to throw their trash into the woods uh, or any land that was yet to be developed. And so he was part of the effort to sue municipality many times or sue um, any developer who was not going to do a environmental impact study. This is something that would cost sometimes too much for a developer. If it's a larger developer, like, say, Pyramid, the builder of our local regional mall, um, not just the only one, but the, the one that people like less, uh, the more evil corporation, <laughs> I suppose, if you can rank them. And, But otherwise, that's the legacy he's left me, the legacy of activism and sometimes going to public comments later. You know, like uh, the, the last one I remember was when the county was uh, going to ban styrofoam. And um, at least styrofoam containers for most businesses, most size businesses. And, uh, and that was one of the few times he came out to do public comment with me. He was always, as I go um a lot when I don't have a script I'm working off of, he would have to clear his throat every 30 seconds. So listening to him tell a story, a joke, or do public speaking was sometimes kind of laborious. And it's something I learned from to not do, uh, though I didn't. I don't have the throat problems he has. Uh, I think it was a mix of tobacco smoking, maybe some pot smoking, but obviously tobacco burns much hotter than weed. So I'll just leave it there because uh, I don't want to ramble too long about that. But I wanted to share what has slowed me down in the past few months. And perhaps, and nothing's for certain, as there are still various things on my plate, things left undone, help my mother, help my family to to left undone especially um <laughs> home repair projects as that was his responsibility now it is mine until we sell the sell the house in particular that i'm thinking of um but his impact was great but this is also kind of not quite an anniversary of course but because i don't actually keep track of when i started the show but i wanted to go over what the show was has been so far because this, this episode is titled A Beginning or a New Beginning. I haven't decided which. But I called the last episode The End. So maybe just A Beginning. But in this uh, program, as it's uh, been two hours, a two-hour podcast, I've covered various left-wing strategy, trying to answer questions that were raised throughout my eight years of activism that I couldn't quite answer at the time or wanted answers to. But, well, the fact... And the fact of the matter is, rarely did anyone even have guesses or hypotheses or proposals for what those answers were to various questions. I would also cover, or have covered, topics of interest, like my greenwashing episodes, trying to keep up on the latest and how green capitalism is trying to tell us that, yes, we can, in fact, save the planet, but without changing anything about our economic system that has created the crisis, whether it be the ecological crisis, crisis of poverty, crisis of police brutality, name whatever crisis is on your mind, and that is what entails the system, how to change the system, how to work around the system if that's your goat. And, and I've covered various ways of doing that from various points of view. 
arguments for and against various tactics and strategies, or rather how to figure out how to apply various ideological theories or ideas, how to practice them beyond mere activism and try to separate activism from organizing and what makes up organizing and how that is what is effective and actually grows something positive and makes that builds that better world that is possible. That uh, was the promise uh, slash the slogan of the Occupy movement, which originally radicalized me. At times I would talk about my journey, but really my note here is to talk about how this show is been a part of my journey. Or rather, for the last four years, this program has been the kind of podcast I would have liked to listen to in the last 10 years as I listen to podcasts. You know, following the advice of when you make something, make it for, like what you would want, and maybe some people will like it too, as some people most usually do. Or there will be an audience. I've not quite found a complete audience, though, of course, I've gotten my share of compliments and listeners who I did not actually were friends with already. So that was always good to have people at a, say, a political action come up to me and go, oh, you're, you're the guy doing the three laughs. I listened to your show. And that's just, that's nice, isn't it? Uh, to know that your reach is beyond just your tribe, more than what you can see. So I need to think about what the, uh, or I have thought, for at least a year, what the next step of the show will be. And particularly that I kind of need to get it out of my system. To answer these big, heady questions, to have two-hour programs where they're very dense, I'm just covering, you know, not just covering theory. I did not want to be a just a theory show, just an interview show, just a current event show. I want it to be more of a news magazine. And for that, it, it would take two hours because I wanted to cover at least six, five to six, four to six articles to have a greater view, to see the big picture. That was pretty much my goal, to have a podcast that talks about the big picture, but it can't you can't talk about the big picture without having different perspectives because the truth lies not in one perspective, one place where the truth is, but in the intersection of different perspectives, different ways of seeing, different truths, as no one truth is completely exclusionary. Capital T, there are many lowercase truths. So for the last four years, I've made the show for me which, of course, is a selfish process, doing what I want when others would have suggestions of what I should be doing or, like, you should do more interviews because that's what I would want to listen to. Well, there are podcasters that do just interviews with leftists. But now, of course, I've got it on my system. I basically to my, feel like I feel like I have answered the questions I've wanted to. At least I've covered them. I've had discussions even with myself, but I've also tried to have various co-hosts and for as long as they were able they would help so this episode will be sort of trying to wrap things up with various takeaways the theme i'm going with are like what are the needs what are the needs of the various ideologies the three lefts so i will cover what socialists need to take into account what anarchists need to take into account and what ecologists or environmentalists conservationists need to take into account. So let's start with a check-in. 
with what social um well this is it's interesting because uh, I'm, I'm so let's check out regeneration blog slash site for the marxist oh well actually i guess it's just a general marxist news site but it includes it's basically us i think it's just the the site for the marxist center about a year and a half ago maybe two years ago i covered the convention of the marxist center and two years later maybe three years later actually that's how long so this is a good way of charting the like the course of my own show that early on in my program episode 40 maybe i covered this marxist center and their what they were doing and now i'm going to end this section i mean the show's not over of course folks but this uh period of the show i'm going to end with this article remarks on the disillusion of the marxist center the marxist center this this article will explain what it was and the theme here uh, I'm going with the message is kind of what socialists or social anarchists or anarchists need to kind of take away because this Marxist Center which is quite a positive project in my eyes when I read about it I'm like oh, this is nice I like to see how this develops it fell apart for kind of standard leftist reasons that uh, that that make the plague the American left and by left, I mean like a marginal left, not progressives in the Democratic Party in the Beltway, but actual socialists on the ground, you know, radical people. So this is written by Tim Horace. He was a leader there, one of the leaders of the Marxist Center. So here's his letter. Starts with, comrades, for those who follow such goings on, I want to acknowledge the decision of the Marxist Center, a project I worked on for several years and have been associated with, which has voted to dissolve itself. I was not present at the vote, nor was the vote undertaken at my instigation, but I concur with the assessment of the comrades who took on the responsibility to dissolve it as a collective. I believe they made the right choice. The project had run its course, and although several of us had attempted to resuscitate it, the best thing to do now is to accept that it has come to its conclusion. Now, personal aside, this is kind of how I felt about Occupy. That after, I mean, particularly the state killed it with its crackdowns. The Marxist Center did not have state crackdowns involved. But the Occupy movement could have continued in some different form that didn't rely on occupying public space, though Occupy's success was the occupation of public space. So there was a conclusion by many that it just shouldn't continue if we can't occupy public space. I considered that Occupy is obviously more than just taking up public space, but it's a movement that can address many, pull many different types of causes together as they are interconnected under the rubric of we have an unequal economic system and a government that is plutocratic. That's fun is ruled by money. And I thought that was enough to keep people together, keep people working together, regardless of their tendency. It was not. The parks were needed to keep people together, meeting in the same place. Once space had to be rented or you need certain permission, that was that changed the flow of things. And I tried to keep Occupy Albany, not Occupy Wall Street, because I left Manhattan where I lived. Uh, for college, and I tried to keep Occupy Albany going, even though I wasn't part of the original encampment or anything, so I was a fresh face. But I was one of the people, facilitators, what have you, who wanted to keep meetings going, 
and wanted to keep events that reminded people that Occupy was still around, that Occupy meant something, that these problems had not gone away, and that Occupy as a movement, as an occupation of space, should return. And it's been 10 years now, over 10 years. And it has not, you know, happened again. There's, there's never, there are usually some people who call for reoccupation, but they're usually lone voices and everyone just rolls their eyes, including myself, actually. It's like, well, we shouldn't try the same thing twice. That was literally the advice right after we did it. Back to the article. Anytime a revolutionary project ends, it is worthwhile to summarize its trajectory and highlight lessons learned. For the Marxist Center, our fortunes very much paralleled the left resurgence that took place between, in the cycle, political cycle between 2016 and 2020. I've analyzed these trends elsewhere in an essay I was hoping we'll soon see in publication. For the present purpose, I will confine myself specifically to comments about the Marxist Center. My analysis here represents only my own views, not that of any org, and I'm sure others will contest specific interpretations. No, it's just his, his opinion, man. Other comrades have important perspectives, and I hope all of us will be engaged. The idea of the Marxist Center came out of discussions between a handful of communists between 2016 and 17, culminating in a conference in 2017 between a variety of locally-based socialist collectives. The early MC, Marxist Collective, adherents supported the strategy of base building, which was a program that advocates that socialists or other types of radical leftist elements, that would, should embed themselves within science of working-class struggle. That means unionizing workplaces, neighborhoods, raising socialist ideas and helping to organize with the class, general working class, against immediate class enemies, meaning bosses and landlords. So union organizing at workplaces, tenant organizing with housing. Some of these groups are just... Well, they've been starting to do that, and, and that's been the new development the last cycle. Now, the makeup of the network were an oddball assortment, and I mean this the best way possible, of lo small local collectives that didn't wish to follow the Democratic Party electoralism of the DSA, and were also not members of any other legacy left groups, uh, which are actually like the now-defunct International Socialist Org. The largest of these groups were charitably a few dozen. Most were consisted of less than 10 members, your standard working group. The list of groups fluctuated significantly over the years as a number of groups dissolved and new ones would join. My own group, the Philadelphia Socialist or Philly Socialist, grew from around 100 members to about 300 by the end of the Trump years. But our organization was by no means typical. On the whole, Marxist Center never counted more than around 600 members. So they are like half which is quite lopsided and speaks to the problem. You know, there's an inequality of members. If it was only just small groups, maybe there could be some, you know, a horizontalist confederation at work. But it's like it was this Philly socialist kind of dominated. Uh, after a or at least the um, appearance of it. After officially founding Marxist Center as an organization in late 2018 at a Colorado conference. That's actually what I covered. We set to work in attempting to build up infrastructure to support local collectives organizing. Some collectives immerse themselves in base building projects, generally tenant organizing, but there were some labor organizing efforts as well. Many groups also participated in social movement activism, such as protesting, political education, you know, holding panel discussions, reading groups. 
and the like. Uh, maybe movie showings. Those are always a good time. A number of groups struggle to figure out ways to engage in their communities. While we sometimes try to support them, results were mixed. Feedback we received from some orgs were that our interventions were positive. Uh, we listened to the issues they were dealing with and sometimes were able to offer ideas about possible ways to address them. Other groups and individuals chafed at these interactions and prized their autonomy over any attempts to build collectively. So essentially, the Marxist Center was like almost like a think tank or an org to help other local cells, these cells, which are 10-person groups, which is what some various nonprofits, you know, attempt to do. These issues came to a head at our 2021 convention, in which several comrades proposed a measure to eliminate at-large membership as a category in this project, the Marxist Center. This question touched on differing theories on how to support and build new revolutionary collectives. Should we focus our efforts on supporting existing ones, or should we support individuals who are trying to start up new ones, or provide guidance and support in the event that their location is not conductive to forming one? So at least, you know, help individuals be better activists or do activism, or simply support the groups that exist and are members to make it as strong as possible and thus and then maybe individuals then join those groups uh, we had a similar kind of question in the green party here in new york where for the last decade we had what were mul we have multi-party organizations usually um party orgs are based on county you know based on election districts and the county is where you know each county has its own Board of Elections. So it makes sense, legally, legally speaking, to have county groups. But some counties, like in any state, New York is no exception, some counties have very few people in them, very few registered Greens. Thus, you know, if you have three to five Greens or ten that, that working group size scattered across three different counties, it makes no sense for them to, or rather, for them to have separate orgs, but maybe they could join together to have one multi-party org with 10 people in it, active core people meaning, rather than three groups with two people each. And two people is not enough to really do anything. But 10 people is enough to do various things. So that was the idea. That would help people who are isolated to join together with others around them, uh, rather around them. But even counties, you know, usually take an hour to drive across. Uh, some maybe half an hour or whatever. But the point is, <laughs> they're somewhat closer together. And that includes our area, even though we're more of a highly populated area, the capital district of multi-county org, which we call the Upper Hudson Greens, which included Warren County, which is in the Adirondacks region, but they actually split off from us when they actually had a really good congressional campaign going on, and they were their own 10-person committee. They didn't have to be in our 10-person committee. They were, they were big enough to be on their own. So they split off. So now Upper Hudson Greens actually was four counties, or four or five instead of six. But the point is that over the last 10 years, it's been shown that uh, we've come to the conclusion that this really didn't help. It didn't help bring... You know, multi-county orgs 
were meant to be a supplement until county orgs could be built. That the point of the multi-county org would be to help these 10 people build capacity in their local area until that there was a bigger group of core people they could recruit and then form county groups, right? This did not happen. And I can say from experience probably why it didn't happen in our neck of the woods. We remained a multi-county org. We weren't building in Albany County Greens, as there once was in the odds. Mostly because when we would meet, we have meetings, and we would decide what to focus on, and we would all want to focus on what was happening in our area. What was happening in Albany versus what was happening in Troy, what was happening in Saratoga, what was happening in Schenectady. And that was pulling us apart as far as splitting our time. And the only thing we could really focus on was kind of in the last, you know, two cycles was defending our line against impositions because of a lot of chaotic rules and and just busy work. We weren't canvassing. We weren't organizing local stuff. We could only do things as a 10-person committee for the whole region. So we could only kind of do regional type issues. We weren't able to focus on local issues because otherwise we would be picking one person's area over another. And that's probably what it felt like in this situation. But at the same time, it's like, well, we're trying to give good advice because we're a large urban organization. And and like he says, they're, they were balking at these interventions. Because autonomy is just more important. You know, don't tell me what to do. Well, the outlarge proposal was delayed out of convention and eventually, in August, voted down. By then, it was clearly too late. Distress had been engendered within the network, as what happens when you have a controversial question at hand. But the other thing to keep in mind is that this is 2021, and with Trump out of office, you have a lot of leftists that don't feel like there's anything to do. Or it's like, what do we do next? And then that question invites factionalism or arguments that can't be amicably solved. So there was distrust. And a number of the autonomous groupings began either formally disaffiliating or informally dropping out. This was coupled with large, you know, ghosting. This was coupled with larger political difficulties arising from the pandemic and the challenges opposed to in-person organizing the ebbing of the George Floyd Rebellion in 2020, and eventually the co-option and quintessence of left forces after the election of Joe Biden in November of that year. Of course, I thought the point of the Marxist Center being a bunch of revolutionary socialists, uh, radical socialists anyway, it was the point that they wouldn't get, I don't know, these things wouldn't affect them as much, that they would stick together, they would stay active with their projects. And I guess the point is they were, but they, these events affected their ability to want to work collectively on a national level. The ability to have conferences really helps to see p- the people you're working with in person. If you're just doing it online, of course, that, that puts up walls. Continuing on. Many orgs dissolved in 2020, 2020 and 2021. A number of members floated off into the DSA, which, whatever its politics, had the advantage of people and resources or simply dropped out of politics altogether. Always a tragedy. There was also a campaign against MC members by state security agents, a situation which probably shouldn't be spoken about with cases pending. 
ear to the ground for more on that. By January 2021, it was clear that those remaining, that continuing to push forward the Marxist Center would not be the best use of our time. Again, I support this decision by leaders who took responsibility. By way of lessons learned, when I look back at my own personal efforts as well as the fortunes of the group collectively, here are some takeaways. Beware the path of least resistance. Although I had cautioned of the danger of activist networking and promoted the idea that communists needed to go among the masses, I wasn't able to figure out a strategy of building socialist organization on a national level, which was able to bypass the activist left. Always a toxic scene. In retrospect, it probably would have been more worth our while to focus on building up a nationwide tenants and workers association. We were heavily involved along with other forces in the foundation of the Autonomous Tenants Union Network. And many of our strongest chapters founded and still run affiliated tenants unions. But the possibility of a nationwide revolutionary collective, a party, can probably only emerge out of these deeply rooted base building efforts. Arguments that these types would make against, say, Green Party organizing is that the Greens are such an activist network. Uh, that, that's what it grew out of. Instead of growing out of a union struggle or unionization or tenants unions of any kind of collective effort, it grew out of the collective uh, goals of environmental activists in particular, but also labor and other types of leftists, anti-war. It was about trying to bring those movements together into a political entity, as this was attempting to do. I'm not sure they're doing things out of order because that's always what I'm trying to figure out with this program is what is the right order of steps when you're organizing or doing to do, to go beyond activism, you know, just protest, lobby, protest, lobby, and then get nothing and try to win a quixotic um, electoral campaign along the way. The rebellion of 2020 was proof positive that social change and ultimately the overthrow of the Washington regime will not come about without a mass struggle. Neither can we hope for the Democratic Party to deliver us from the rising threat of fascism. Whether or not we can head off the challenge of today in time, next generation will review our failures and chart a more radical course of that, I am sure. It didn't last because it, was, it seemed to be its creation and its existence seemed to be rooted in the Trump administration and, and the we-got-to-do-something energy of the times. And even though the crisis hasn't abated in an iota, in fact, now that the pandemic's over, now suddenly mass shootings are happening again. Just like literally a switch was pulled. There was one mass shooting last week. There's another mass shooting that was like today. There'll probably be another one next week. And the death toll will continuously be between 10 and 20. Because it's always some white, battered person uh, with, um, well, actually, actually, the one today was a person of color. So they were killed on the scene, unlike the one in Buffalo who wasn't. Anyway, I don't need to say more of that. Next, from a similarly uh, socialist revolutionary perspective, hood communist. I did read something from them last time as well, but this is a different writer and it's called The Myth of Good Ideas by uh, Christoph, or Christopher Simpson. If I know who he is as, we, as I read this. 
and it was originally published, it's an essay, from Intenement Yad Media, a Caribbean-focused media platform. This man is Jamaican. As people who want good for Jamaica, one of the realities that we all have to accept is that there is no objective good or anything that everyone will support or agree on. We have to do away with the liberal illusion of objectivity, including the ideas that debates are just about finding the best ideas, that there are things that will work for all for us, that maybe our leaders just have not thought about them yet. This type of thinking is something we can reasonably expect from optimistic children and teenagers who want to see a better world, but it is also something that many persons, unfortunately, have not grown out of. Hear that, or they kind of die and become jaded when they find out that things don't actually work like that. In general, we, if we are interested in change, we have to understand things as they exist now, what exactly it is that we want to change, what we want to see being the result of the change we want to make. But even here, the word we is doing a lot, because we could very well have different perspectives on what exists now, what should be changed, and what we would consider to be good results of change. The last bits is the most important of this piece because many persons already understand that there are different perspectives when it comes to analyzing the present and that there can be different methods towards achieving the same goal, but still take for granted the idea that we all consider the same things to be good. We need to accept that there are things that some persons will see as good and others will see as bad, and that it is not just a matter of different opinions or ideologies that can be resolved through simple debate and discussion. It is possible for something to benefit one set of people while harming other people as well. No amount of intellectual discussion or debate can change that. When something harms a set of people, those who are harmed will rightfully see it as a problem. Others may not necessarily see it as a problem, and even if some do, they will not necessarily have any interest in trying to solve it. When something that, and solve is in quotes, when something that harms one set of people is also something that benefits another set of people, those that benefit not only lack an interest in solving the problem, but may also have an incentive for maintaining it. For the beneficiaries, it is not a problem, and we only see it as a problem if we decide to side with the persons who are harmed. Consider any actual relevant political discussion slash controversy. This is the reality that ultimately matters in addressing issues in our society. There is no great objectivity that we can pull from the sky from the mouths of pseudo-intellectuals who overuse their dictionaries. Because many issues that face us have different sides to them. We need to understand that different people in different sectors of society want different things. And these wants can come into conflict. We also need to understand that taking the middle ground or the pseudo-intellectual nuance position to try to please everyone will not necessarily resolve any contradiction. We must not be afraid to take sides in social, economic, and otherwise political conflict. We must be open enough to say what our goals are and leave room for those who oppose them. Then we must be comfortable with identifying who we see as allies, neutrals, and opponents. We cannot fight for change if we are adverse to even the simplest language that acknowledges the existence of conflict. If you do not have enemies, then you are not fighting for anything. Conflict exists because different interests exist, 
and the difficulty in solving many problems is created rather than encountered by chance, as the problems themselves are often created rather than things that just exist by chance. Things that you may have problems with can be the results of conscious decisions made by persons acting in a specific interest, not necessarily someone being incompetent or just needing a lecture on what is good versus what is bad. Your good idea to stop something from happening will not be valued by those who want the thing to continue happening, especially if they benefit from it. All of this is pretty standard matter-of-fact stuff, right? It seems to be a kind of go-without-saying, right? And yet, when it comes to most political or social discourse, there's still kind of a... We have to all get along for the sake of society, for the sake of not civil war, you know, or whatever. We all, if we accept that we're a fight or they're enemies and allies, it's like you go straight to shooting. That's what you, like you go straight to that, which I would not say we do. Or maybe that's where people go because all other options or platforms for fighting are completely un, uh, unworkable because they're plutocratic. You know, you can only have a civil fight over ideas or politics or policy if you can afford it. If you can't afford it, then the guns come out. Or you have to, or the fist, or, the, or it's fisticuffs. And so it's like, if you want that kind of, the violence to not be what people turn to, there's got to be the platform that's fair and equally accessible to everyone. So to repeat, there is no objective good because different people want different things, sometimes conflicting things. And something that is a positive goal for someone can be a nightmare for others. We need to do away with this lazy thinking that we can all come together, that everything in, this person lives in Jamaica, but we can say America, will be solved once we are all just we all just work together in some fantasy land of magical harmony and realize that some persons and entities in our society are actively and willingly a part of the problem that some of us may want to solve. This is not to say that all dialogue and peaceful conversation is futile. We should always seek the simplest path to change first. But with an open mind that things will not go as easily as we want them, and with the willingness to actually fight and struggle against obstacles rather than conceding to the status quo and those who, are all, who already have power. We need to see the status quo as a project that is actively maintained by those who have power. And we need to see our visions of a different future as things we will need to actually work for if we want to bring them about. Even if it means going against those who have power and those who choose to side with them. So this goes counter, speaking now. Thinking of the status quo as some natural state of nature or being or thing, something that's almost immutable, something you have to work around. Because like it, it's like uh, talking about market cycles or uh, property ownership as like, like the sun and the moon and the tides. They go in and they go out. You can't explain it. can't do anything about it. You can't fight the sun rising and the sun setting. And that's the way people think about, I don't know, this country, this government, how things work. Because the alternative is just too frightening to contemplate some, for some reason. 
Change will never be brought about by those who want to please everyone, those who always try to find the middle ground, those who try to give too much value to the sensibilities of those with power, those who are afraid to make enemies, or those who are willing to set out their principles and water down their ideas to make them seem good to those who are content with the status quo. I've seen many of books who do this, either right off the bat or over the course of the book. So this was written by Christoph Simpson, who is a self-identified Marxist-Leninist, currently serves as a chairman and secretary, uh, first secretary, rather, of Jamaica Lands, an emerging political movement which is sustained by a network of leftists across Jamaica and Jamaican diaspora. So I read that because, <laughs> if you can't tell, uh, we need to fight, and we need to be able to actually have a fight. Because... So much of local politics, national politics even, is it's like, you know, you're, you have enemies and they're fighting you. And you actually have to fight them back. But if you do, you're in the wrong. They can fight because they're doing things properly. They're following the law. But they made the laws because they're in power. And so it's just a matter of like, you got, there needs to be an acceptance that's like, you're not going to win a game following the system's rules. More on that in the next hour. Last 10 minutes, I'm going to follow up with a little bit of uh, light theory, which I'm going to attempt to summarize because reading it would be too much of a slog and it's very too dense. But I'm reading this from, uh, or I'm taking it from Libcom, libcom libcom.org. I had heard the phrase uh, class suicide uh, uh, in a podcast or two, and I didn't quite fully understand it. Uh, so I read this uh, article about it, which is uh, Theory of Revolutionary Socialism by Tom Messenander. The general idea is that uh, a revolution of a political struggle is that you know the working class, the low, the oppressed, will rise up and uh, and overthrow the ruling class, or at least fight enough, you know, make enough trouble that they'll get a seat at the table that there will be a concession. This is sort of the idea that's in play with uh, the 2020 riots. You know, we're going to do some damage. We're going to have a demand, defund the police, shift resources into social projects, stop occupying us to stop crime, because obviously that hasn't worked, because poverty causes crime. Equality causes crime. We need to address these things. But that didn't result in any change in policy. If anything, police budgets were increased. Nothing was truly changed. And the now this is about uh, this particular political theory is more about the third world, the developing world, you know, South America, Africa, Southeast Asia, South Asia. But I think there's something that could be said about here. And sum it up. You can't just have a workers' revolt. You know, when when workers' revolt or slave revolts happen on their own, they are crushed. As well-organized as they could be, they're working off of pure anger, adrenaline, and tragedy and anger. And that's kind of how the BLM Part 2 and BLM Part 1 actually felt. They were flash in the pan. They ran out of energy as soon as... Summer ended, basically, and the winter got cold, uh, and the weather weather changed. But also, the state was able to adjust 
respond, crack down, and and of course put out its usual run of PR to satiate the people in the middle who thought defunding the police was crazy and you're asking for too much or abolish the police is obviously uh, too much and you know you got to go in the middle you have to concede you have to water down your ideas right but you can do amazingly radical things in a short amount of time but one pattern that emerges is that you need some middle class aka petty bourgeois people to commit quote-unquote class suicide which is to give up their beneficiary position in society as referenced to in, in the last piece and join the working class or rather help them organize this is usually in the form of a vanguard party or some other org of middle class people who then collaborate coalesce with working class orgs or working class organizing or activists or rather you had all these activists born out of the anger of these police murders but there was no organization besides democratic party functionaries and other status quo warriors for them to meld into and obviously they weren't going to have any of that but you also had plenty of like well we we do we're actually like to get our message out we have to be peaceful or we have to do things properly you have to listen to us i was hearing a lot of that i wasn't seeing organizing i wasn't seeing strategy at work i wasn't seeing more than just the standard cycle of activism which has been a wheel that's been spinning ever since the 70s but successful revolutions in the third world where workers actually took charge of government they decolonialized they fought imperialism they formed their own government for better or worse rather usually looked frowned upon you know always demonized in american media but at least autonomy, a government of that area for that area. So what am I talking about? Well, think about China. Mao was college educated. He was a college student. In his college days, he was a librarian from middle-class stock. And there was any revolutionary leader you can name comes from some kind of educated middle-class background. Now, there are some working-class heroes, of course, but you know, when it comes to successful revolutions or the taking of power, there's always some middle-class lawyer who is organizing and believed in left-wing cause. And it wasn't a matter of them telling the poor masses what to do. It was that they needed each other to achieve the goals of a just and more egalitarian society. So he, had a, he wrote an article in 93, this uh, Miss Hen Hender, who argued that revolutions in the periphery can only come to fruition via petty bourgeois leadership, which then dissolves itself, and that the working class and peasants are unable to carry out a revolution themselves. This not only ignores the attempts at self-management by workers in the periphery during the 50s and 70s, but also the large-scale proletarian, you know, the creating of working class people, that has continued since his theories were originally published. So this article kind of argues against them against as well. But I kind of like the idea because it's, it's a pattern to take into account. You know, you have, I mean, Marx and Engels themselves, um, but also the leaders of the Russian Revolution, various parties, 
They were all middle class blokes. You have the Castros. Fidel was a lawyer. Che Guevara was a doctor. These names matter. You know, Bukharin, great uh, leftist theorists. They had money to write. They were well off. And they inspired many working class people, lower class people, underclass, to take action. Now, of course, they could take action on their own behalf, but they were usually beaten, suppressed, like in 1848 and all kinds of other years and revolts and rebellions and strikes that failed. The ones that succeeded, you had middle-class people that, that quote-unquote, were class traders, and they gave up their positions to shift the balance of power. So that's something to keep in mind. And it's something that comes to my mind when I see black chamber of commerces, black business owners, black capitalists, doing their power poses, looking like the Democratic Party leadership. Sometimes they are jockeying to be in that leadership. But what good is that for black communities? Not singular, because that's what it is. There's different black communities. There's a one that's richer, that's their business owners. Petty bourgeois, and there's ones that are still in complete poverty or imprisoned or have police boots on their necks. And it's mostly about talking about the periphery, referring to colonial struggles and resistance to, you know, globalism, global capitalism. Class suicide by the revolutionary petty bourgeois leadership uh, amounts to listening to its own consciousness and the culture of revolution rather than acting on their immediate interests, materially ones, uh, as a class. It must sacrifice its position, its privileges, its power through identifying with the working masses. This unlikely event depends on the power and material basis of the revolutionary con consciousness of you know, these sections of people. The idea of class suicide by Aaliyah, you know, revolutionary leadership, because this is what we're talking about here, is perhaps Cabal's most important message to any kind of socialist revolutionary today. The absence of class suicide has blunted the progressive potential of many revolutions originally conducted under the banner of socialism. Today, maybe it would be progressivism. You have a lot of middle-class people, but who are unwilling to let go of their class positions. They're not willing to go against police structures or market structures. You know, they own property. They don't they don't want to give up their um, property rights completely, of course. That's what I'm talking about. Or are they willing to join a cooperative? Are they willing, you know, or they're joining a cooperative, but it has to be a consumer cooperative where their buying power is what is privileged, not a working co-op where the workers have power. Instead, you have, get you get you know consumer co-ops where they're kind of a mix of some of the bad things that corporations have. But, you know, they, they can be a bit more community-oriented, but they'll still be union-busting when the workers of a co-op who aren't members want to unionize. This, this notion of it, at first glance, may sound unrealistic, but is much less so than the most popular competing images of any kind of struggle in the third world. Some suggest the true socialist revolution must be spontaneous, an outburst, like Maybe you can think of something. Often this seems to imply that these events will occur without any formal political organization or division of roles between leadership and, well, 
the crowd. The argument is that socialism must be radically democratic, even when it is non-governmental movement, or even when it is involved in the long alders of, or in an armed struggle, or at, let's say, a fight. This image of socialist revolution as spontaneous mass democracy is much more romantic than the idea of this class suicide. No revolution can succeed without organization and leadership. To state that socialism, or anarchism even, can only come through a spontaneous mass movement without leaders and followers, without organizing, without ideology and direction, simply to say that a better world, or rather socialism, will not come. So the second image of socialist revolution in the third world is that it will occur as a result of, of a movement organized and led by alliance, alliance, okay, equal alliance, of workers and peasants with an organic leadership drawn only from those people. This image, though one I am fond of, is too romantic to match reality, historical or present. The lesson of history seems to be that socialist revolution, or any kind, political revolution, let's, you know, if you just want to take a Sanders approach, is that, uh, or any kind of revolution in the periphery, they were led by Mao in China, Ho in Vietnam, Castro in Che in Cuba, Ortega in Nicaragua, Mondeango in Machel, Mozambique, Mugabe in Zimbabwe. Marx's class analysis, of course, expects this to be the case when it discovers that peasant consciousness, at best, is radical only in the sense that peasants want to own land, own their own land, and when it finds that the working class in the third world is new, small, and not yet, you know, conscious of itself, uh, doesn't, let's see, as a social class with, you know, doesn't have its own material interest in some kind of transformation. You know, they're just getting on their feet, so to speak. And this is to say all these, to me, all these things were good. These were all good, positive events in the world. You know, they were decolonial, they were people ruling themselves, and they actually have positive effects. It's American propaganda that focuses on the negative, or, as I figured out over the last 12 years, were outright lies, things that were just made up. But I've also taken the time to acknowledge all the things that were bad. <laughs> but the point was, it was the Chinese, like, let's say I'm just talking about the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution in China, right? These are horrible things. A lot of people died, whether it was on purpose or not. Cultural revolution certainly was. It was like a internal power grab. Point was, it was Chinese people making those mistakes and doing those things. It wasn't the British imposed, like doing a genocide on themselves. Or it wasn't American troops occupying, you know, a third world country. Right. If the third, if, if there's a disaster in a third world country, at least let it be their own government doing it. That's the way I want to spin things because I, I just listened to an interview with a guy who's really hair on fire about China, and saying like they're they're the equivalent of the Nazis, looking to destroy democracy in the world. What was I? What was rolling through my mind? Oh, well, just to avoid the whole, like, he was just, he kept interchangeably talking about the Communist Party of China and China itself interchangeably. And to say, like, oh, yeah, and but he, oh, his defense was, like, in America, because we have three, freedom of speech in the Constitution, at least we can fight. There is a fight in America. There's hope. 
We can never be perfect. We can never actually like have a good government or whatever. It's still very pessimistic, it seems. But at least like we can fight for one. In China, like thus implying, he didn't say this, but he was thus, thus implying that because in America we're unique and exceptional, that we can fight, you know, and we can struggle for a better union. In China, I guess there's no fight. There's no internal politics there. But I know pretty much there is. Chinese Communist Party is not a monolith. There are factions there where chauvinist, you know, if, if, if we're talking about Zhejiang, the chauvinists got their way or, or they had to be placated and uh, compromised with. By chauvinists, I mean people who are just, you know, very much like everyone has to be Han Chinese. We don't need these. We need to de-Muslim, you know, Islamify the Muslims there and whatnot. They weren't completely in charge. Otherwise, it would have been a genocide. I've covered, well, I haven't covered that in detail, but it's, if you actually look at academic research and evidence-based reporting that isn't just blatant like propaganda, it's much more of a mixed bag. And that's the case with any of these revolutionary things. So instead of just being defensive about it, let's carry on with the concept of class suicide. He felt that the key to a possible... Possibly, possibility of successful revolutionary socialism or any kind of revolution, let's say, on the periphery lies in the post-independence role of a middle-class leadership of a nationalist movement. So it goes in all of that. National movements as part of neo-decolonial uh, struggle as we have a neo-colonialism in a global capitalist system, which is today. Let me go to the conclusion. Both liberation and socialism require bringing all hierarchies of privilege to an end, both those external to a revolutionary movement and those within it. It is better to have leaders and structures that anticipate and are prepared for a post-independence class struggle that include, and that includes the requirement of class suicide, that is to then to deny reality through romance that, you know, working class struggle will happen, you know, victory will happen spontaneously. You know, even real revolts that succeed were organized. And they had people, let's see, on the inside of the system willing to not just not work within it, but leave it. That's the difference.
So with that, I'm going to I'm going to cover this, which I've had in the bank a long time. It's called. It's from Meta Moderna, a blog website from this Swiss philosopher who's written a pretty good book. He's kind of a post-leftist to to, to just classify him, but he has a lot of crazy ideas. I've 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 spent one whole show almost like reading like super long stuff because he's written a whole book and he publishes pretty much whole chapters online. But this is more of a nice pithy article. It's called Game Change, Yes, Please. So his name is uh, Hansai Freitrock, and he published it February 2020. So the intro is this. Neither game denial nor game acceptance is a consciously held perspective. They are, of course, mistakes we make because of unconscious biases or emotional investments in ideas or identities, like I'm a radical anarchist, which invites game denial. Now, they constitute subtle forms of self-deceit. The moment game denial and game acceptance are recognized for what they are, it becomes apparent that they cannot be sustained. Everyone will vehemently deny their own game denial or game acceptance and claim to be a responsible game changer if confronted. What, then, is game change? And by game, the system. System change. As one motto, uh, one slogan of the Green Party, system change, not climate change. It is the productive synthesis of denial and acceptance. You accept that life is a game, and you resolve to work to change it. It's quite obvious when you think about it, but let's take a closer look. This is an extract of his book, The Nordic Ideology, A Metamodern Guide to Politics, Part 2. It's a series of books. Life is unfair because relations between us sentient beings are layered in games for scarce resources. The resources, of whatever form, we can reach for a sublime and approach our fundamental, unknowable God nature. Though gaining access to food and favorable mates, partners, we escape the ever-present clutches of death and reach for immortality through reproduction of various types. I would say art, too. In human beings socialized within complex tribes and societies, death is defined by the extension of the idea of ego. My name, my recognition, my ideas, my deeds, my children, my, my, mine, my loves, my passions. These are all in my own ways scarce resources that are distributed, accessed, and enjoyed through playing the playing of games. Some games like uh, Duels to the Death, I guess, and War. Uh, the Students of the Psychology of Death, a fascinating and promising field of empirical research that builds upon the heritage of Ernst Becker's denial of death, have produced plenty of experimental evidence to show we become more eager players of games when confronted with our own mortality, which is why I play video games at least an hour a day. <laughs> it keeps the existential dread at bay. Humans have a strong unconscious drive to cheat death. When reminded of death, even in a southern manner, we latch onto our identities, our wealth, our worldviews more eagerly, and we judge one another more harshly. True story. The intrinsic and inescapable fear of death distorts our cognition and turns us into game deniers or game acceptors. The bad news is that life is unfair. I don't agree with this guy 100%, but I'm going to read it. The good news is that life is a game, and that its rules can change. These are two sides of the same coin. The question is not game or no game, but the nature of our relationship to the game and the evolution of its rules. 
Games produce dynamics of interaction. They give life in samsara a temporal, fleeting meaning. Maybe we can be winners, or at least avoid being losers, or at least hide that we are losers. They give an experience of substance to the fundamental, pristine, and empty meaninglessness of reality. They produce a story, a drama, stakes. Moves are made, victories won, losses cut, and barely remembered. Games produce results. They produce losers and winners, just like you and me. We all know both sides in different contexts to different extents. The major objective of the meta-modern political project is to change the rules of the game. Our simple message is that everyday life, as we know it, can and must evolve. The game change position holds. And I think at least one of these I would dispute, but let's go through them. Life is a plus-sum game with possible win-wins. Life is also often a zero-sum game with lose-win. But anyway, life is sometimes even a tragic dilemma of lose-lose. But the rules... Four... The rules of the game can change, evolving into more win-win and less lose-win and less lose-lose. Nobody actually ever deserves to lose games and suffer defeat or humiliation. By the way, these are his, you know, preceding beliefs. Seriously, who would tell a kid that they deserve to be crappy at school, to be ugly, lonely, or poor, to starve, to have low self-esteem, to have a fragmented, anxious mind, to be part of the losing side of globalization, that baby turkeys and industrial butcheries get what they deserve. All injustices in the world are caused by the playing of games. So that, I like that point. So like the games themselves are kind of the problem. Humans and other beings have no choice but to partake in games is also a premise. In the last instance, no injustice or suffering is ever excusable or tolerable. It is our ethical imperative without compromise to change the rules of the game. Successful changing of the game is that which produces more winners in life. It produces fewer losers. It softens the fall of losers. It increases the rewards of winners. And it makes people act kindlier and more fairly while playing the game. Now the point is that winning in life is never enough. What if you become that successful? You know, what if you're a trillionaire? What if you're Elon Musk? What if you get those hot young men? What if you save that many lives? What if you really save the world from climate crisis? Then you'll still have a kid or somebody else you care about who is crushed and humiliated by the same game you played and happened to win. The game is still on. It's still grinding. For every winner, there is a loser. This connects to that other thing I you know, read about fighting and identifying enemies. Uh, that we all can't get along, actually, and we all can't solve problems by just talking them out. You were the awesome idealistic writer who pointed out injustice. You were a hero. The very fact of your moral victory means that you just trashed, humiliated, or outcompeted somebody else. That somebody else could have been you. It could have been your own child. Of course, this, this kind of empathy leads to an uh, egalitarian outlook. A socialist one perhaps. And more fundamentally, it is you. Winning in life is fun, but it's just not enough. Classical liberalism, neoliberalism, conservatism, capitalism, and fascism are all based upon accepting the game in an attitude of may the best player win. They're all defenders and upholders of injustice, cruelty, and suffering that just cannot be justified. So what if I win? 
in a deeper sense, you still lost. You must change the games of life. That is the only result that counts. That is the only victory worth keeping because it includes everybody. The game of life will still produce losers and winners, but the results will be determined through much less bloodshed and losing will come at a much lower cost. This will be a society in which people will get more than one shot at glory. So don't hate the player. and Don't hate the game either. Because we need to love the game, learn to play it, and change it. Because we love the players. So he goes into what he calls multidimensional game change. Game change means to admit the game, even to play it lovingly, but seeking to change the way it works. Games have a dynamics, and these dynamics can work in directions towards grosser, more refined games. All games have evolved from something else. When modern Western people compete for spouses, we don't usually we usually don't even reach the point of a verbal confrontation while lions fight and kill each other's cubs. I'm not sure about that, but our game is more refined and its rules harder to learn. But obviously, games for sex, identity, and partners have evolved. But let's say uh, material goods. Just a few hundred years ago, intrigue in Europe would habitually involve duels to the death. Nowadays, it rarely does. Although, I want to point out that uh, somebody made... I uh, was listening to something about social media. Okay, it was in the context of how hard it is to enforce any kind of ability to hold people accountable for their language meaning you can't you know social media companies like facebook or google are insulated from what is published on their site and they want to have it both ways they're both the platform from which things are published so they have editorial control right they're able to censor who what they want or remove posts and sometimes in the for their for their interests and yeah pretty much but they also cannot be legally sued for what is on their sites. You can't, you know, even though like some shooter was posting on your site, they can't, you know, the victims can't sue them for, for them being able to propagate their message or to have been radicalized to do the shooting in the first place. Since these things can't be, you know, uh, resolved in court, goes the conversation. It's, this is why people are kind of result like, Go, going down to violent action, whether it's it's lone wolf now in the same way that duels to the death were kind of spotty. You know, they were between a certain class of people, but whether it was fist fights, uh, gang wars, and just turning to like, I have to take this out on somebody because the courts are useless to this uh, in solving this issue, or for me to stop the harm that somebody who is slandering me online. And there's no legal recourse. So it's like, I got to go kill them. <laughs> or I got to go to their house and put the fear of God in them. But then things can go wrong. So anyway, I just wanted to insert that little thing there. Things can turn back. Maybe, maybe we're seeing that, maybe we're not. Game change is a developmental affair. It has to do with making advances into a higher stage of development. So to sum up, on the next page is a simple model of a holistic game change presented as a five-step process. So it's a circular 
five-step process. There's no particular starting point, which is kind of why I'm not sure I like this, but I'm going to start randomly at system. No, actually, I'm going to start with usually where kind of culture war kind of comes in with the step of psychology. Uh, Psychological change allows psychological development into higher stages in more people. This leads to behavioral change, which changes the behaviors of many people and what they can expect from one another. This leads to culture, which makes possible new cultural development, new ways of seeing the world, which leads to a new context. Deeper and more complex political issues can then be raised, which leads to system change, changes in the systemic properties of everyday games, everyday life, everyday politics, which then which leads with system change or changes in the system, thus then allows for new psychological developments. Five-step process. Can you see how the inner development of people is interlinked with the development of society? That society's function fundamentally relies on the personal development of its citizens. Sorry, that was also a question. You can't just develop society by means of imposing a certain political system or changing people's values. Game change occurs by means of systemic change, psychological development of populations, changes in habits, and cultural development. You know, new, new scenes, new subcultures. These fields, system, psychology, behavior, and culture, develop together as described in his appendix. Various social studies go into this. Of course, many, of other, many other interactions than the ones presented in this feedback loop are possible but it gives us an idea of what it really means for society and humanity to develop. Don't you ever dare tell me that drastic, dramatic and positive change is impossible. If you can't change people's behaviors, you might change something in their systemic incentives. If that's not possible, you can always bring up new issues and find ways to change the cultural discourse. So that's kind of what defund the police as a movement was about, but it didn't bring about systemic changes. Maybe a little bit, but again, here and there. Uh, Sorry, if that fails, you can always find a few people to help them develop their values so that they can form a new competitive social structure, which is sort of what base building is about. There is always a chink in the armor. Somewhere there is always at least some leeway in an apparent gridlock of society, which in turn opens up new Possible development somewhere else. There is always a promise for further development. We are looking to create new contexts, new situations, where what was impossible before now becomes possible. This is, needless to say, a dynamic process, which we need to let different forms of development support each other. We'll squeeze in developmental leaps where people didn't think they were possible so that we can make possible the transition to what he calls a metamodern society, one that fits, one that is fit for the global and digital age. For our end readers, if you want to see how game change relates to some classical political philosophers, consult his footnotes. Less, no, there's more. There's more levers, many levers. So thus, let go of game denial and game acceptance and go for game change. There are different levels of game change, some more fundamental to others but all are necessary. There are different levers to pull. Here are some general suggestions. He basically kind of gives a reading list. First, he kind of says, study the rules of the game. 
read The Art of War, The Prince, or Neil Strauss's The Game. This actually makes the game fairer because it works against game denial and towards a more even distribution of knowing. Political education, basically. Do political education. But emphasizing this side alone can land us into a cynicism of game acceptance. You know, if you just politically educate yourself and you know how bad the system is, you can, you go jaded. You can just go jaded. Change the game settings by changing the supply of resources. In richer societies, where resources are more equally distributed. What? They're more unequal. But anyway, the games of everyday life are generally less cruel since people have more than what they need. He's talking about Norway. He lives in, like, he lives in Scandinavia. So uh, the games of everyday life are generally less cruel since people have more of what they need and thus feel less tempted to take advantage of others. But that's generally true. That's kind of what the Socialist Project is all about. Or mutual aid. What's next? Next suggestion. Change the game framing by changing ethical discourses. What is considered acceptable or not in order to get ahead. That's pretty much what most leftists always are doing. Even who is to be considered a loser can be changed. For instance, by making it okay to be poor or uneducated. Evolve the game by increasing cognitive capacity for social perspective taking. This makes the whole game fair because people at higher cognitive stages uh, accept what John Rawl called the veil of ignorance, which means not knowing who in society you'll be. Thus, you know, you want things to be fair so that if you end up losing, well, you're not destitute. <laughs> Thus, universalizing programs and social policy. Yet higher levels of complexity breed even more refined games, like accepting solidarity with all sentient beings and making room for different kinds of consciousness in public. Getting stronger and wider monopolies of violence is another tactic. States can uphold rule of law, but the lack of a global polity or transnational governance sets a limit for how far solidarity through rule of law can reach. You know, the UN cannot actually enforce international law. And currently, the U.S. basically has a law in our books that basically says if the Hague, the International Criminal Court, ever wants, tries to prosecute any, anyone in the U.S. basically for doing a war crime, the U.S. military is obligated to invade Holland and break them out <laughs> or put a stop to it or interfere or what have you, which is why it's called the Invade the Hague Act. Uh, but it was basically a law passed uh, in the past few years. <laughs> basically, yeah. So it exempts us from international scrutiny. <laughs> but I believe if we really want a world without war, we need a UN that can basically say, if you're going to declare war on someone, then we're going to have a bigger army to stop you. An army made up of everyone else. And a military alliance that actually includes everybody. Which basically is the same as not having any military alliances. So anyway, a big and strong monopoly of violence stuck in a crude game can, of course, cause a lot of relative suffering, like with fascist states, uh, causing more suffering than representative, Republican, capitalist, meeting societies, even though they manage to gather considerable monopolies on violence. But a strong state simply makes it more likely that interpersonal misdeeds are penalized, that people's lives and property are protected, and hence that losing in the games of everyday life doesn't actually entail death or absolute poverty. 
At last, but not least, changing the lived relationship to life and death through increasing contemplative insight. So, you know, get spiritual. Hence, changing the needs and wants that the games are played for. This changes what goods are ultimately seen as most real, more substantial, easily divvies up. A concluding comment that in the listening society, I argue that neither the market nor the state bureaucracy nor the civil sphere making like civil society, associations, clubs, the media, personal relationships can be seen as rational, free, or humane. Rather, each sphere can be more or less intelligent and displaying varying degrees of collective intelligence. They're kind of a trinity. They develop together and depend upon each other for their proper functioning. In this view, it makes less sense to be a classical libertarian, a socialist, a conservative, or an anarchist because each of these positions is inherently biased towards or against one of these things. So, for example, common wisdom would mean like as a socialist, oh, I have a bias towards state bureaucracy or civil society, but not the market. Uh, liberals bias the market, but not civil society. So on, you know, you, you buy, you're just biased towards one or the other. You don't see all three as being completely necessary. Except that's why I'm a multi-tendency leftist. I think all three are actually something, things to work with. But they all have to be transformed, which is the point. So there are different analytical, factual triads that are becoming increasingly intermeshed and reintegrated in a post-industrial economy that relies more on sustainability and creativity. So these uh, triads that he gives are the systems, which are the market, the state, and civil society. There are spheres of life, which are the professional, the civic, and the personal. There are the triad of political bases, the base of solidarity, base of competition, and the third, that is trade. And the triad of political values, those being order, equality, and freedom. Now each of these triads develop fractally they're, they're, they're their own systems their constituent parts develop together or regress together even if there may be times one aspect can and should be emphasized over the other two the triads can be intelligently weaved together or their parts work against one another which cause harm and more fundamentally the parts depend upon another in their logical structure the game deniers tend to dislike and deny the aspects of competition and trade that are in fact logically necessary parts of life and society. The game acceptors tend to deride and underestimate the real aspects of solidarity, moral concern, love, trying to explain these by reducing them to hard facts of political realism and crude interests. They think that competition is the most real thing. The game change position avoids these biases against markets, the state, civil society, or against solidarity or competition and trade. Rather, the idea is to work for game change across all of these areas to see how they interact, how they strengthen or impede one another. The idea is not to eradicate competition from life, but to transform and refine the nature of it on the labor market and work culture, political elections. In the games of love, sex, and family and peer groups. So again, final conclusion. Don't hate the player. But don't hate the game either. We need to love the game, learn it, change its rules, and change its rules because we love 
the players. Thank you. That was my TED Talk. So that was, you know, the Game Change article was my, um, to fit into the frame of my narrative, the need to see the big picture with mature eyes. The class suicide bit was the need to sacrifice individual gain over more human humanist gains. So now I'm going to wrap up, try to decompress now with some more uh, lighter fare. So first, I don't know if I've read this before. I just forgot. But I think maybe I just planned to but never did. It's from On the Commons, and it's Eleanor Ornstrom's Eight Principles of Managing a Commons. So now that I've kind of talked about the needs of an intermeshed, more effective left-wing politics, which has always been the goal of this section of my show, first first five, four or five years, some general outline of values and things to things that are meaningful instead of focusing on little details try to see something bigger ostrom's uh is a political scientist at indiana university she received a nobel prize for her work for research proving the importance of the commons around the world her work investigating how communities cooperate and share resources drives to the heart of debates today about resource use the public sphere and the future of the planet she is the first woman to actually be awarded the Nobel in economics. Amazing. Her achievement was effectively answers popular theories about the tragedy of the commons, which has been interpreted to mean that private property is the only means to protecting finite resources from ruin or depletion. She has documented in many places around the world how communities devise ways to govern the commons to assure its survival for their needs and future generations. You know, change the game without denying it. Classic example of this was a field research in a Swiss village where farmers tend private plots for crops but share a communal meadow for their cows. Well, this would appear a perfect model to prove the tragedy of the commons. Ostrom discovered that in reality there was no problem of overgrazing. That was because of common agreement among the users that one is allowed to graze, is allowed to graze more cows on the meadow than they can care for over the winter, a rule that dates back all the way to 1517. Ostrom has documented similar effective examples in self-governments of commons, self-governance of the commons, in uh, Kenya, Guatemala, Nepal, Turkey, and Los Angeles. So here are eight principles for managing a commons. And these have come up again and again in various articles I've read about whether it be um, intentional communities, collectives, co-ops, and various other strategies uh, for left-wing collective action. And something to keep in mind in organizing. And it's something not done when doing activism. I think these uh, principles are always missing one way or some way. Maybe just not all of them, but some of them are. And that's what leads to the activist pit. That that Marxist center guy was like, we didn't want to rely on activism but we we still did at the end of the day and that's what led to these conflicts so number one define clear group boundaries this goes back to who's allies who's neutral who's an enemy not just for fighting 
but for governing. Of course, we do this with municipal boundaries, county lines, state lines. But I think it should also be done economically. We need economic boundaries, not just based on governance or, you know, boundaries of the country, but boundaries like watersheds, boundaries based on like where dollars are actually spent. Principle two, match rules governing use of common goods to local needs and conditions. Pretty simple. Number three, ensure that those affected by the rules can participate in modifying the rules. You might be surprised or unsurprised. In fact, it's something we live every day. That laws are made that affect us and we're not directly consulted. All we're given is the off chance that we can affect <laughs> the representation, our representation, or we delegate authority to a politician that modifies the rules. We all can think of examples of how this is not usually effective. Can be in a less corrupt or plutocratic system, perhaps. But I think, uh, to put it in macro sense, uh, just thinking of this uh, example with Israel-Palestine, that when it came to the original UN plan for dividing the two-state solution, this plan was created without the consultation of Palestinian leaders. The plan was made without them. So why the hell would they agree to it? It was made and enforced without their consent in any way, not even representatively. So, of course, they have spent 70, 80 years not abiding by it, and thus, you know, conflict. Even just to look at it from a Zionist point of view that the settler Jews, Jews that had settled, were somehow in the right or deserved to be there. Or that the land could be shared, which was never, ever actually on the table. Or at least splitting in half was like the, okay, you're going to share it. But again, this was all done without, you know, any participation from Palestinians, their leadership or a referendum. Just an example. Principle number four for managing commons. Make sure the rulemaking rights of community members are respected by outside authorities. So, too often, authorities don't actually respect the rules that community members make. How many times, uh, God, I can, I can probably think of some local neighborhood examples of a community acted in its own autonomy to fix up a lot, let's say, or to do something, do some community benefit thing. But then the city authorities say, we didn't give you permission to do that. And they stop it. I can think of a really simple thing, uh, patching up concrete or guerrilla urbanism painting your own crosswalk lines the city says it doesn't have the money to paint new crosswalks but for pedestrian safety you need those crosswalks so you end up you paint them yourself but you did it illegally so you're punished or rather the city will paint over them <laughs> and have the money for that principle five develop a system carried out by community members for monitoring members behavior as in have a structure for accountability. So many orgs do not have this. Number six, use graduated sanctions for rule violators. You know, not just all or nothing. Have a way of doing restorative justice. 
Principle seven, provide accessible, low-cost means for dispute resolution. Public defenders need to be on call. We need an army of them. Resolving your disputes in court is something that people middle class and above can do, maybe not even middle class. You have to be particularly rich enough to afford a lawyer, even to have one on retainer. Or even like, you know, and this is where like the whole like, you know, the uh, call call up a lawyer, you know, I'll help you get justice, uh, lawyer chasers. That's how, you know, the little guy gets justice. Otherwise, you have to get a gun or, or you have to start a fight, you know, and this is why gang wars occur because there's no low cost means for them to, to resolve their disputes. They can't go to courts. Or uh, they can't, uh, anything else would cost too much, or they're not even allowed to do. I think the city or any municipality should provide free or at cost, uh, or not even at cost, I mean subsidized legal services. Not just, I mean, in some ways society tries to do this by requiring lawyers to do a certain amount of pro bono work, but... <sighs> Either, like, you know, most lawyers are halfsing it or they're just, like, you know, they're taking cases but they're low priority because they had to do it. Now, some do mean to do it, and then they're actually, like, doing it as part of nonprofit work, you know, the legal things called the Legal Project or the, the Legal Observers Guild. But shouldn't they be paid for their labor? You know, it shouldn't be pro bono. It shouldn't be, like, they have to volunteer. People should be paid for the labor. Um, and they'll be taking it more seriously. And last, build responsibility for governing the common resource in nested tiers from the lowest level up to the entire interconnected system. A little dense. But those are the eight principles for managing a commons. These are the things that throughout the world and all kinds of cultures, so you can get around cultural uh, relativity arguments and things like that, Lefties like me are not actually uh, cultural or moral relativists. We see all kinds of universals and not the negative kinds, but positive ones. I want to also cover in this last penultimate episode, <clears throat> what is social ecology? Another thing I feel like I probably read at one point, but I don't remember doing so. Social ecology is um, one of those, you could call it an, an actual ideology. Here's a summary of it. What defines social ecology as social is its recognition of the often overlooked fact that nearly all our present ecological problems arise from a deep-seated social problem, or that they arise from social problems. Conversely, our present ecological problems cannot be clearly understood, much less resolved, without dealing with problems within society. To make this point more concrete, economic, ethnic, cultural, and gender conflicts, among many others, lie at the core of the most serious ecological dislocations we face today. So this is about connecting ecological or environmentalist thinking with social thinking, with socialism. <laughs> if this approach seems a bit too sociological for those environmentalists who identify primary ecological problems with being preservation of wildlife and wilderness or some other Gaia, they might wish to consider certain recent developments. A massive oil spill by Exxon tanker Prince William Sound. The extensive... God, what, this was written in 93. Three? I guess it was. This is pretty old. Uh, but that's when this uh, 
kind of idea, this ideology came about. So it's about not separating the ecological from the social. Because too many environmentalists wouldn't kind of take on system change. And that's where that slogan really comes from, the acknowledgement that we have to change the entire system if we are to address the climate crisis, social crisis, whatever kind of crisis you think is happening. Whether it be, even even if you think there's just uh, men are being too effeminate, if that, and that's a crisis. It's still a social problem that requires system change. And we can fight out what that system change is, but at least let's get beyond the delusions that we can treat these things separately. Some critics have recently questioned whether social ecology has treated the issue of spirituality and ecological politics adequately. But social ecology was, in fact, among the earliest contemporary ideas to call for a sweeping change in existing spiritual values. Such a change would be a far-reaching transformation of a prevailing mentality of domination into one of complementarity, one that sees our role in the natural world as creative, supportive, and deeply appreciative of the needs of non-human life. In social ecology, a truly natural spirituality would center on the ability of an awakened humanity to function as moral agents. Just to counter the cynicism of, you know, humanity is a disease, humanity is a plague, humanity is the problem, uh, humanity is inherently selfish, and so, like, we can't solve these problems. You know, this is, this is something John Stewart did on his show. Problem with environmentalism became the problem with humanity. Not the primary of resource-scarce capitalism. That's the game. We should change it. Which does include changing ourselves, our spirituality and whatever, but it's like one of the steps in that five-part cycle I went over. The effort of some, uh, in some quarters of the ecology movement to prioritize the need to develop a pantheistic eco-spirituality over the need to address social factors, which actually erode any and all forms of spirituality, raises serious questions about their ability to come to grips with reality. This is referring to new agers or various types of conspiracy theory um, people. People who rely on conspiracy ideas and hypotheses to make sense of the world because they're not thinking about uh, social social factors. At a time when a blind social mechanism, the market, is turning soil to sand and covering fertile land with concrete, poisoning air and water, and producing sweeping climate and atmospheric changes, we cannot ignore the impact that a hierarchical and class society, what this has on the natural world. We must face the fact that economic growth, gender oppressions, and ethnic domination, not to speak of corporate, state, and bureaucratic interests, are much more capable of shaping the future of the natural world than these private forms of spiritual self regeneration awareness you know your own little consciousness bubble is not enough these forms of domination must be confronted by collective action and by major social movements that challenge the social sources of the ecological crisis not simply by personalistic forms of consumption and investment that often go under the rubric of green capitalism the present highly cooperative meaning our society is quick to co-op things that are good, uh, is only too eager to find new means of commercial aggrandizement to add ecological verbiage to its advertising 
and consumer relation efforts. That's actually the end of that. Just as, you know, uh, you can commercialize even revolutionary slogans and symbols. Because really, those are just symbols and slogans. It's really what you do that matters. Can't, it isn't just a fashion statement. Because once you start organizing and you actually stick to principles and actually label like, no, we're, there's no collaborative relationship between capitalism or being an entrepreneur and being a social change agent, which is I see very, very often, I see the same reactionary culture of, that this last paragraph was talking about. Something that left us that I admire have been talking about for the last three years. So I tend to want to join or be involved with whatever they're doing or what they're talking about. So I have a piece uh, to end with, um, or left, how to start a housing co-op. I can probably cover this in the future as it's a more of a what-to-do-locally kind of thing, and that is what I will be doing in the future with this program as I shift to a one-hour format. What will be a one-hour format allow me to do? Well, as many others probably can do, uh, if you can guess, it will allow me to be comfortable inviting regular guests or special guests to have a different person each time to invite various local actors, community leaders, or people involved with various organizations to have them on and talk about what they're doing, what's going on in Albany, and be very, very Albany-specific. But I also can be generalizing of things. I'm going to look at local news stories. I'm going to buy a subscription to the local Hearst Rag actual newspaper and read what they're covering and expand on it as that's what people are usually wanting of it. As well as trying to find other sources of information to read, expand upon, a lot of citizen journalism is on social media, so I'll be kind of combing that, maybe picking things that I would always not include in this program as I wanted to just read more particular well-written articles and essays and not just focus on, but I have, of course, sometimes when it was a really striking social media post. But, you know, people bring up certain issues, and I could have them on or just at least read and uh, cavalcade of posts of people kvetching about local things, you know, what hasn't been fixed, what could be fixed, what what they think is a problem, and I could talk, you know, argue about it. And being local means I could actually t talk to them and feel comfortable because for the last four years, this has been a nationally focused, not focused, but like a show that anyone can listen to wherever they are. People can still listen to it, of course, wherever they are, but I'm just warning everybody this is going to be an Albany-focused show for Albany people. And that is who I'm going to be outreaching to, as that is who I'm going, I'm now going to be now comfortable, not just outreaching to fellow leftists or people who I think might be interested in the show. Now I'm like, no, everyone should be interested in the show. Everyone should be listening to me. I'm going to be like the person that you go to for what's going on in Albany. And, of course, I'm going to be putting my commie spin on it, whether you like it or not if you want to be informed or whatever. But, of course, <laughs> it's always up to people's preference. But I, like, I would like to be a more indispensable part of the local ecosystem because guess what? There is no local Albany voice that actually covers 
all or most issues and talks about various things. Everyone's in their own little silo. Even when it comes to media creation, you have people, you have artists or poets or whatever making their zine that's just music stuff, you know, and that's fine for the music scene. We used to have a little community newspaper. It wasn't a community newspaper, though, but it was it was called Metroland, and it, and it had... It was funded by basically being the place you go to for music news, and it would usually cover, like, the major story would be artist-related or art-related, but they would also have, like, a one political article. Uh, they actually, when I ran for office, gave me a uh, paragraph <laughs> uh, when I was running for county executive. That was the first time I ran for office. And I was just a ballot filler then, so I was okay with just getting a word in, you know, just getting a sentence out. But that's all they could ever provide because they would have to have a lot of ads in there to pay for it, and even and it wasn't even long-term sustainable. Or it was based on its leadership. It wasn't actually a community effort. I would like there to be some kind of community newspaper, but there really isn't. So, which is why uh, it was either like the uh, Channel Albany public access TV station or this community radio station. And obviously, you know which one I picked. But we need more local news. And, of course, I'm going to have my political spin on it. But that is where the journey is going to take me for the next plan, anyway, is a few years. We'll see where that goes. I think the general plan is I do this for three years, see what kind of reaction I get, see if I can pull in a listenership, and, uh, and then run for mayor again in, let's see, last one was... Well, the last mayor election was 2021, so I guess I've got three years. So we'll see where I'm at in three years. And if I'm running for council or I'm running for mayor again. But uh, that's kind of what I felt four years ago. And obviously I did not run for any office last year. Uh, I was just not up to it. I was just totally demoralized after 2020. Since, you know, whatever is going to happen in 2024 is going to happen in 2024. First, my profound thanks for listening, which is a skill as important as talking. So I plan to listen to any constructive feedback, ideas for the show, stories, topics, or rantings you message on Facebook, Twitter at 3 Left Show. You can also email at 3 Left Show at Gmail. This program is made as a part of independent community radio. So support us materially, along with other producers and citizen journalists, with a donation or membership to WCAALP at grandarts.org. Capitalism doesn't value this work, so to support myself personally, become a member of my Patreon, which is also at 3 Left Show. Support the show of your time by telling others you believe would be interested, liking and sharing and checking in on our social media pages, as word of mouth is our best advertising. This episode and the last 10 are broadcast on most podcasting apps like Stitcher, Apple Store, and Google Play. But a full archive of the podcast, along with links, sources, and notes, are found at 3lefts.news. Of course, the most important thing is to put the ideas, thinking, and projects talked about here in practice yourself. So be well, keep it rad, and keep waving the flags of the 3 lefts.